Hey everyone, welcome into Patterns Tell Stories. I'm your host, Klaus, and today we're going to be talking about haunted people syndrome, caudate patamen, and the recent legislation that just got killed or will be uh, apparently getting killed in the house. With me today, as always, is my co-host, Garrett. How's it going, man? Really good. It's been a crazy week. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, lots of ups and downs. More downs than ups. Uh, I guess it depends how you look at it. So this week, there was uh, some news that the Republican leadership, first in the House, uh, Mike Rogers and Mike Turner, both basically, uh, according to Chris Mellon and several other sources, are putting the uh, kibosh on the UAP Disclosure Act of 2023. Uh, that's obviously extremely disappointing. You know, they just went over it at the Seoul Foundation Conference last weekend, uh, laying out a, a plan that, that we talked about where it was pretty much based off this amendment that was coming out, talked about non-human intelligence and craft of exotic origin or unknown origin. Yeah, pretty much everything in it that we could have wanted. And uh, it's very telling, I think, that you know, the defense lobby apparently came in and convinced these guys who are Republican leadership that that kind of killed this thing. And they even got McConnell, uh, Mitch McConnell, the Senate, I guess, minority leader right now on board. And um, they're at least um, neutering this thing and ripping ripping out the, the important stuff like the uh, review board, probably. And uh, definitely the eminent domain aspect where the government could go and take back any materials of unknown origin that were in the private sector, which kind of makes sense that people had a problem with it. But uh, I think it really gave the bill teeth. It was clearly a threat to uh, certain individuals in the defense establishment. Yeah, man, what, what are your thoughts on that? And how do you see this going forward? I think it's sketchy as fuck that anybody is against any of the shit that was in this legislation. Fucking dude, right? It's crazy. Like, <laughs> what? The, nothing in there. I feel like any reasonable person that it, that listened to uh, Fravor and Graves and Grush. I feel like uh, at first I was like really fired up about it uh, because like I'm really into politics. At the same time, the the problems that we're seeing now are like problems of our system. Lobbyists straight up came up and made sure that this did not happen. And that's very telling. And we've talked about that before on this podcast, how like lobbyists a lot of these companies pay more for lobbyists than they do in taxes. And that's wild because that just tells you how much pull people have. There's times that you can't Democrat or Republican. I know that there's candidates that like you cannot even sit and talk to unless you put down 10 grand. Yeah. I've bitched about this so much already on Twitter and I'm, I'm bitched out right now. <laughs> like, I'm super <laughs> fucking over it. And like, uh, I was really bummed out at first too. And was kind of like, really? Like, what the fuck? But you, you kind of sit back and realize that like every single time the defense establishment just comes out and just straight up is like, no, it's just another uh, validation of, of how this cover up is, is so real. And is so ingrained and it, it, it's kind of undeniable at this point because you have, you know, the top politicians in the country coming out and killing this thing because it's obviously a threat. This bill costs no money. Uh, I don't know, like $20 million, like less than OSAP. It's literally just a transparency bill that that should be a slam dunk for any other subject. I, just the fact that they find this uh, as, as such a threat that top politicians had to kill it is just so telling. And uh, I think, honestly, you know, people who want to push for disclosure can use that um, to their advantage. We can we can kind of take this and be like, hey, I, you know, it doesn't mean the mainstream media is going to investigate it, which is also absolutely ridiculous and, and another extremely frustrating aspect of this that we can get into another time. But yeah, pretty much this whole thing is just a giant admission of guilt. I like how Dave Grush kept using that term catch 22 for a, his strategy on trying to open this up. He, he would talk about how like he would want to come forward with information and then he would verify if that information could come out. And then depending on how they responded, it put, I would assume, the intelligence community or the people in charge of that type of decision, I feel like it puts them in a position where 
depending on how you answer a guy saying, hey, can I say that I saw, let's say, 15 alien bodies? <laughs> yeah, someone's right. response to that is like, <laughs> you can say that you saw biologics. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, like- I, I feel like it's a funny, uh, the way you phrase things getting cleared to be talked about sounds like a really funny process because it seems like it puts the uh, people in charge of that decision in a position where they're like, I would call that a catch 22. Like, how do you respond if it's this sensitive and secret? They have to be very like ambiguous with their response. So even like they, they say, yes, you can say it. And they're like, okay, I can, I can talk all about it. And if they say no, it's like, okay, it's real. You just prove that. So it's really, yeah, it puts them in a bind because like if this program is indeed illegal, as uh, certainly sounds like is the case, basically puts them in a position where they either have to admit it or let them talk about it. It's kind of a place that they put themselves, the DOD, in uh, keep, you know, keeping all this stuff secret. It's now they're kind of damned if they do, damned if they don't. Mike Turner probably got the most balling fucking lobbyist <laughs> dinner oh <my laughs> these God. past few weeks he was probably balling bro like <laughs> yeah like ugh. no these fucking assholes man it's just uh it's just so frustrating knowing that like it's so clearly not in the interests of the american people to like intentionally and publicly not be transparent on this stuff i bitched about it enough i've made i've made my points and um Go check out my Twitter feed if you want more on that. But uh, on a more positive note, Gary Nolan was just on the Good Trouble show with our friend Matt Ford about an hour ago. I think it ended. Um, I think you took some notes on that. Can you let us know some of the uh, important points you uh, took away from that? Yeah, sure. I mean, the first and foremost, I thought Dr. Nolan did a great job of expressing his opinion and sounding intelligent. And also still being funny and charming. I know he's a very busy individual. So like, I really like that he came on a show like Matt Ford's because I know he's a cool kid, works really hard. I don't know why I call him a kid. He's a fucking, he's a cool cool dude. He's not old, but he's not, uh, he's definitely older than you. And uh, for exactly. And uh, (laughs) he's a cool cat. Yeah. He's a cool cat. And, uh, (laughs) I always thought it was dope that like people like Gary Nolan will come on shows like that and talk to someone. And Bettachini Split is a fucking legend for. (laughs) (laughs) They went through the whole slide. Anyway, like seriously about UFOs and the Soul Conference and stuff. um, Gary Nolan was reacting to like the recent news of them shooting down this legislation. And he made a really good point that like, no one ever succeeds if they quit at their first failure. So as far as this year's goes and people getting discouraged about disclosure coming and like the fact that this legislation this year got shot down, I feel like no matter what people can take away a win, like look at how much more aware the everyday person is about this topic. We just saw, they, they talked a couple of times about Grush's appearance on Joe Rogan which was another like really big, significant thing that happened this week. And uh, I've noticed more people uh, interested and like coming into Twitter spaces and DMing me and asking about UFOs that generally didn't really have an interest in this topic. And you can tell that they watched Dave Grush on Joe Rogan and they were like, oh, oh, this is like a, uh, this is actually happening. (laughs) Huge, huge deal, man. That's a, that's a big deal. And especially like right before Thanksgiving where people were talking with their families and shit. But yeah, we'll get into a grush on Rogan in a minute. But uh, yeah, sorry about that. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, you're good. Gary Nolan was like, he seemed real disappointed in like we were saying earlier, how lobbyists went all out to make sure that this did not happen. And that there's a problem with our system of just like, this is a problem across the board is that lobbyists have too much influence on our politics. That's one thing. They asked him about catastrophic disclosure. Yeah. What is the risk we run of NHI all of a sudden appearing to large swaths of the population and people just going crazy? Gary Nolan's response was really cool, I thought. Um, He clearly doesn't pretend to have all the answers. 
But he pointed to an event like the Phoenix Lights in Arizona and like what that did to that community and what that did the way our media was. Yeah, he was saying there wasn't really social media fully at the time. So the information didn't really get out like it would have on Twitter if that was around back then. Exactly. And he was making the point now that like that might be uh, an example of when that type of event happens, how culturally we react to it. When I look at it, I still think that like a modern example of something like the Phoenix Lights would be like a big problem to explain away, you know, and that's just one story that like a lot of people corroborate. There's many, many people that come forward and say like, oh, yeah, I remember that in Phoenix, Arizona that night. Like there's stories I've heard about that, like in New Jersey. There's people that say that things have landed in New York City. I know for sure. But like. That's all stories. Yeah, you mentioned the uh, catastrophic disclosure in that question. It's interesting. I found uh, just kind of coincidentally that back in April, uh, Danny Sheehan actually mentioned catastrophic disclosure in his speech he gave at the Romero Institute, which is kind of his foundation he set up outside the government to kind of facilitate also this legislation similar to the Soul Foundation. Um, I think he's more on the legal side of things, though. But he did mention this, and I find it really interesting that he he referred to it as something that they talked about within the legacy program. Like, this isn't something that they just came up with at the Soul Foundation. Like, this is a actual term they use within the legacy program, at least from what it sounds like in his speech. So I found that interesting that this is something they, they're considering within the government. It's essentially their fear of of giving up power. This is what he says. Um, uh, They view this as being catastrophic, not the least reason, which is that they're part of the governor class and they don't want to lose that kind of control. And that's a fairly elementary insight because, you know, it's a totally human nature that they're like that. But we have to try to figure out how to deal with that. But yeah, it's pretty much, um, you know, just society going going crazy and, uh, you know, the structural governments kind of collapsing. Is, is their main fear. This is what the legacy program themselves uh, mean by catastrophic disclosure, according to Danny Sheehan. Danny Sheehan is a um, very accomplished lawyer. He, um, he was part of Iran-Contra, he litigated Three Mile Island, Watergate, all sorts of giant uh, public interest cases. And um, him saying this kind of thing and him being involved in this is, is a pretty big deal. Yeah, a person can learn a lot from Daniel Sheehan interviews <laughs> about like uh, there was one Reddit thread that covered one of his interviews very well a couple years ago. And I'll still send it clips of it to you with responses he's given about like uh, international finance and like all these geopolitical issues that people don't even think twice about. He's just a very well-informed individual. So I, I second that recommendation to anyone who wants to check out more Daniel Sheehan. Did you see that uh, Gary Nolan said that the videos from Seoul are going to be publicly available? I yeah. thought that was pretty sick. Yeah, and, I can't uh, wait for that. His explanation for why he wanted to uh, keep it kind of like under wraps while it was happening, I really respect it. Because he didn't want people just getting like incomplete versions of what these people and speakers were saying. No one was like live tweeting the event. I, I hope to see more of that type of style in the future. Personally, I know that even with the limited amount that did slip out, people were going all over the place with speculation about yeah. what people were saying. And uh, it's a really difficult thing dealing with information and getting warped versions of information. I appreciate that he's cognizant of that because the ideas that we're discussing in the past, when they've been thrown around like a little recklessly, that's one of the ways they've been thrown around recklessly. People just like let speculation get way out of control before you know it. You have yeah. people just like accusing people of being in some like, I don't know. I, I thought his response was really like measured. You know, like we say, like when people tell you they know what every answer to everything is, that's probably yeah. like when you should like raise an eyebrow because a lot of the brightest people I know that talk about this topic admit that they don't know what's going on. I just really thought 
Gary did a good job on that interview with Matt Ford. Yeah, it was really good. I go check it out. Matt's a good guy. I mean, yeah, we're kind of at this spot where it's a bummer, but it's pretty much um, like Gary said in that interview as well. He said, you know, that's basically disclosure. When you have uh, the defense um, establishment come in and kill a bill, that it's kind of disclosure in itself. You know, it's a it's a setback that I think we can overcome, especially with stuff like the Soul Foundation coming out. It's just another... Uh, vindication of of this thing being real i think it should just kind of strengthen our resolve just motivate us more because uh there's a there there that was pretty much admitted to by the Republican leadership uh this week i'm trying to remember who exactly pointed it out i think dave grush pointed it out and it was a great point and i wanted to mention it so tim Burchett, mike turner both republicans right tim yep. per- tim Burchett has been borderline heroic on this topic And Mike Turner has been rotten, instrumental, in my opinion, in killing this recent legislation from going through. I think Dave Grush mentioned on Joe Rogan that Mike Turner was trying to help Tim Burchett's political opponent to make sure that he didn't get reelected. Am I mischaracterizing that? I mean, that is correct, regardless if he said it on Rogan. But yeah, that's accurate. That to me, showed me exactly this is bigger than just Democrat and Republican. This is something that is like people need to be informed at what these people stand for. And Burchett has been pretty quiet about this uh, not passing. So there's something fucked up going on in the government. And uh, I don't know what it's going to take to root that out. But that brings me to something uh, Grush said on Rogan. Yeah, if you haven't checked that out, go do that, you know, after this, hopefully. But uh, yeah, David Grush was on Joe Rogan. He said a lot of things that really resonated with me. And I think people might not realize like he's he's 36 years old. You know, he's he's pretty young. He had a big career ahead of him that he gave up to come out and tell us all about this stuff. The way he presented it on Rogan was a lot deeper than I think he has in other interviews he's done in the past. Rush framed this as a sort of generational thing. He's talking about this new generation is ready for a change. You know, what's been going on for the past 80 years having to do with this UFO cover-up is very clearly obviously there, you know, considering the events that went down this week. Uh, I think he, he put it in a really interesting light. This is a paradigm shift on a lot of levels. This could have a lot of positive change getting this stuff out there. The thing that kept standing out to me was how familiar he was with the structure of how these things are kept secret. One of the things I keep hearing tossed around is the Department of Energy, like the Manhattan Project. Hearing from Grush, one of the most like high-ranking guys with a legitimate service record, they said he was given executive briefings. That is the the office of the president. That yeah. is like, uh, I don't know, like to me, the his record, if you pull up his uh, history and his service history and the schools he's went to and the things he studied, he's a like legitimate dude. He keeps mentioning the Department of Energy and he keeps mentioning the Manhattan Project. And this could be even deeper of a secret than the Manhattan Project. Think about what we were talking about last week, how it's possible that like there's things operating that like people genuinely, there's no oversight. That was the big, biggest takeaway from like Grush's thing was that there was no oversight and people aren't even aware that these programs are happening. So when, when Grush is talking, I, those are two things that stand out to me is that he keeps mentioning the secrecy of the Manhattan Project, which was like, it was so important. There's all sorts of like ethical arguments and it's like an existential issue. And there's not too many of those. And uh, this topic, it's so interesting to me to like see that it's being mentioned in this way. Like this is how secret UFOs are, that it, it has to be mentioned in the same breath as the Manhattan Project. I don't think the everyday person is really thinking about how secret the Manhattan Project had to be. Like, I know there were small leaks here and there, and a certain number of people working on the project turned out to be Soviet spies. And But the idea that, like, what was at stake for the Manhattan Project? Well, it was the annihilation of the world. <laughs> so, yeah, like, know, right? think about UFOs. If it's being mentioned as this secret, 
I don't know. I, it's really going to take a crowbar of some kind to really pry this open, regardless of it's some psyop or um, if it's a legitimate thing that's happening or some breakaway civilization. The point is, is like, think about what it's being mentioned next to the Manhattan Project. I don't think disclosure might be exactly all sunshine and rainbows. You know, I think that this yeah. it might be topics that like the nuclear weapons are a very intense, intense topic. I don't know. I don't want to bum everybody out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm definitely going to not help with that right now. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, man, when you think about it in, you know, this whole like idea of catastrophic disclosure and you know, some sort of event happening that basically just shatters everything and turns society into a fucking dumpster fire. You know, there's different ways to interpret this, right? When Elizondo talks about things being somber or us learning like our true nature or place in the universe and not being the highest on the food chain, you know, there's a there's kind of a few ways to look at it. This kind of thing also ties in with cycles of civilizations. And I'm, I'm going to try to explain this in a way that makes sense, as, as one should always. But, um, but this, <laughs> this is a, an interesting way to think about it. So I think, I think it's like Tom DeLonge who, who makes the point that the first reason that all this stuff should be disclosed is because um, it's nature. I guess I'll start with um, the caudate Batamen that Gary Nolan's been studying. Basically, the story there, I'll review it quickly, is that Gary was brought in by, I guess, the CIA to work with Kit Green, and they had this bucket of, of weird cases where white matter displacement in the brain in some of these, um, some of these people who worked for the government, they were, they were high-functioning individuals. They had come into contact with uh, UFOs, basically. The way it's been presented so far is that they had sightings and all of a sudden they're, um, it, the radiation of the craft basically uh, affected them. And now they have like this extra white matter or uh, connections in their, you know, the subcortical area of the brain called the basal ganglia in between the, these two areas called the, the caudate and the batamen. So it seems like kind of like a passive thing. But when you think about it and you think about how Grush and others have, have talked about us trying to shoot down these crafts, potentially like these are directed energy. Some of these pilots may have been actually trying to take these craft down when, when this, you know, if these are directed energy weapons, this might have been the, the UFO being defensive rather than circumstantial or, uh, they just happen to be in the area kind of thing. That, that's an interesting way to think about it. And Gary Nolan also talks a lot about what's known as epigenetics. Epigenetics has to do with certain factors in our environment activating certain aspects of our genome based on, on certain conditions uh, around us. It basically has to do with changes in the genome due to certain environmental conditions. Um, I should probably read the definition of that. Uh, but I think that's I'm pretty accurate. Yeah, it's uh, epigenetics is the study of how uh, your behaviors and environment can cause changes that affect the way your genes work. So it's kind of like a switch. So something in your environment can can change your genes and how they work. Um, unlike genetic changes, epigenetic changes are reversible and do not change your DNA sequence, but they can change how your body reads a DNA sequence. That's something Gary talks about a lot and has talked about kind of in the context of the rise and fall of civilizations and where aggression comes into play there. If the leaders of these civilizations or you know, different factions of a civilization are too aggressive, the genome is going to compensate for that down the line, basically, until it finds a kind of equilibrium to where that civilization can, can flourish. So he said this in an interview with Danica Patrick, I think she was... Um, a NASCAR driver who now has a podcast. It was actually a really good interview, but I just, uh, yeah, this is what he says. I've said this before. I think we're a bunch of angry apes. I don't think we're ready for some of the answers yet. It's like, you don't tell your children certain things until they're mature enough. And we've pretty much proven that we're still not mature enough yet. Uh, you know, it's interesting that evolution, as I've said before, doesn't care about time. DNA doesn't care about time. 
were sort of the first level of civilization that was achieved out of competition. The tribe that was more competitive than the other and frankly more aggressive, and that frankly had narcissistic, psychopathic leaders that were willing to unite a continent at the expense of blood, were the ones that succeeded. But as we're seeing played out in today's politics, without getting political, that's not necessarily a survival trait for a species. So is the long-term play for evolution the creation of a certain level of complexity that either realizes it needs to get rid of that aggression or there will be a collapse? A rise, collapse, rise until the genetics is selected for that. So yeah, that, that's kind of what I was talking about. <laughs> Gary obviously is much more eloquent in his delivery. So yeah, I think it's, it's interesting that, that these kind of switches in our environment kind of result in a rise and fall of civilizations, at least in this speculation that Gary is going through here. When you think about um, his studies into the caudate Batamen, he basically says that, you know, these are high-functioning individuals and the extra connections between those two areas of the brain that result in, in high-functioning is genetic. Another analogy for this that I kind of wanted to talk about is, is the monarch butterfly. Some of the generations, you know, live from two to six weeks, but but the migratory generation that does, you know, the whole migration where basically keeps the whole species alive. The reason that happens is these migratory traits aren't exactly hardwired. They're environmentally regulated. Depending on the environment, these monarch butterflies will have a longer lifespan if if the correct genes are activated based on, you know, certain conditions in the environment. So if it's the time of year where where these butterflies are set to migrate, I guess the certain temperature in the environment will activate these genes and they'll live longer. So if you kind of apply that to potentially this this caudate potamen uh, situation where you know there's more connections at certain times, potentially if you think about it, maybe certain aspects of the environment or whatever happens when you come into contact, you know, get in the vicinity of these UFOs. Perhaps there's some sort of uh, trauma there that that can flip a switch in your um, non-coding DNA. I I don't know what I'm trying to say. You know, <laughs> I guess my point is, you know, when these people, quote unquote, in the know, are talking about something like an event or a timeline or you know the stupid fucking prophecy shit, there seems to be an urgency, right? My point here is perhaps there is some sort of quote unquote migration coming up. So this is a natural thing that happens in nature, right? A natural rise and fall of different lifespans within the monarch butterfly. Maybe these different changes we're seeing perhaps in the in the caudate patamen and you know how that might be related to remote viewing and these extra senses we get. I guess my speculation is that maybe we're reaching a point where our own human migration or something, something natural like that is upcoming and these UFOs or whatever might be a catalyst for that to maybe switch something on or off. I don't know. It's just some dumb speculation I have, but it, it kind of ties a lot together if you think about it. And if it's, you know, if it's nature, then that kind of, then that kind of makes sense. If you think about it in terms of like a butterfly, I don't know. I don't know how much of that I'm going to cut out. <laughs> it's kind of a train wreck. But this is this has always been something that has been part of this topic, right? If you read John Keel or Jacques Vallée's books, there's instances like I was just reading that book, Confrontations, and he catalogs one by one all these different people and the types of effects physiologically that it had on them. And there's pictures of people that like have all these different effects from like coming close to UFOs. And that's my understanding of why Dr. Nolan was so impressive. One of many reasons why he was considered impressive is that like, he's one of the people that was examining people who had come close to these supposed UFOs. He went on Tucker Carlson and they're showing brain scans and he's explaining that like different people have parts of their brain that appears different. And that we consider them high functioning and that like some of these people appear to have come close to, I hate to even paint it, anomalous objects. I, I'm very fascinated by what you're talking about. I I still am trying to understand, like I'm no expert in like brain anatomy, but my, <laughs> my understanding of the basal ganglia is that it was one of the first 
like instinctive parts of the brain to develop. So I guess my point is, I wonder if these senses, we develop them in cycles, kind of like a butterfly develops a long lifespan in cycles. You know what I mean? Also, this brings me back to a story that Danny Sheehan himself tells. He, he talks about butterflies as well. In the context of an ET civilization not making contact with us, he, he likens the ET civilization to, to a boy uh, watching a butterfly come out of its cocoon. He says, you know, he's, he's watching this butterfly struggle to get out of this, this cocoon. And then the last um, little like silk thread is, is wrapped around, uh, you know, the butterfly's whatever leg or whatever, whatever the fuck butterflies stand on. He helps the butterfly and the butterfly gets out of the cocoon. It's fine. But the, but the butterfly can't fly because it hasn't developed the muscles it needs to do so. That one last thread that was holding it back was going to allow it to develop the muscles to fly. I guess the analogy being whatever advanced um, intelligence is here helped us in whatever way that would benefit us. Um, it, it would also like neuter us in a way. And potentially maybe that last thread is some sort of sixth sense. Another way to look at it too is perhaps these UFOs or whatever are are trying to be that boy and cut that thread for us and, and have us develop this through whatever potential mechanism they might be activating through for coming into contact. I don't know. That's just a whole fuckload of speculation <laughs> that uh, that's where my brain goes. And I don't know. It's just fun to think about. And um, yeah, I, but <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to cut out from this, but um, we'll see, I guess. Can I ask you something about the Kade Putamen? Yeah. Is that how you say it, by the way? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. So I saw Gary Nolan go on Tucker Carlson. While he's talking, he had a brain scan on the screen. He was talking about like the white matter and the basal ganglia and like all the stuff that you just mentioned. It sounds like when he's talking about this stuff, he's saying it in a way that's like different couples have this abnormality. It seems like statistically more than non-random chance have been having this type of... Do you get what I'm saying? They're attracted like, to each other, right? Is that what it is? Yeah. Is there, they end up together without, no, without knowing. Yeah, it's... Um, I, I mean, I, I guess it makes sense because like high-functioning people attract high-functioning people. You know yeah. what it said on the fucking... I'm sure you do, but like... Yeah, Department of Energy. Yeah, yeah Department of... It's something about like advanced propulsion... I'm and, like, uh, some what? Brain scan. <laughs> hey guys, maybe we should look over. <laughs> well, and that's the thing. It's like that fucking paper I was talking about where it's the low observables department of Sandia National Labs talking about man machine interfaces. It's like, yeah, it's like obviously there's something going on with the human brain that, that has to do with some sort of connection to these UFOs. And right now we just got a whole bunch of speculation that I just um, butchered. So, Enjoy that, and um, well, <laughs> I guess we'll move on. Did you know that, well, I, I'm sure you do know this, but I didn't know this, and I find it really interesting that the ancient Egyptians kept baboons as pets. They domesticated, well, as much as they could. They, they What? Yeah, dude. What baboons. makes you think I knew that? <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> You're a toth, toth guy, right? Isn't that a baboon? <laughs> no, no. I am no, stop. I'm not, <laughs> I don't, I don't have any religion or any of that. No, I just, but I like, do like reading about. The, by that, those, I mean, you've, you've talked about them twice, which is two times, two times more than I have. So okay. you're, you're a Toth guy. Fair enough. <laughs> Toth is an Ibis. Toth, yeah. He is an Ibis and he is the Egyptian representation to some people of the Greek Hermes, Roman Mercury. Yeah. So, you were literally just talking about him. Yeah, and in a space, someone mentioned him, but they mentioned him like in some weird way. Like they said he was, uh, what animal did they say? It was completely wrong, though. And I'm like, I'm not an expert in any of that, but like. LiveScience.com. <laughs> Ancient Egyptians traded with people in what is today coastal Eritrea, Eritrea, to bring that, baboons to their temples, according to a new study of baboon mummy DNA. So we got baboon mummies. All right. 
<laughs> Ancient Egyptians were big fans of baboons, which they associated with the god Babi. Bobby? Bobby? <laughs> Dude, beats me. I, I'm, this Dude, is, this is your this shit. Is, uh, this is uh, news to me. I don't remember B-A-B-I. Bobby the baboon. <laughs> Bobby the baboon. Uh, a god of the underworld and the DOD. DOD. Okay. Oh my fuck. All right, this let me is start DOD this over. propaganda, Klaus. What no, that's <laughs> all right. All right, let's start this uh, again. Ancient Egyptians traded with people in what is today coastal Eritrea to bring baboons to their temples, according to a new study of baboon mummy DNA. Ancient Egyptians were big fans of baboons, which which they associated with the god B- Babi B A B I, a god of the underworld and the deity. Thoth, who is sometimes depicted with the head of a baboon. So what? you're wrong. There you go. They kept the monkeys in captivity, removing their sharp incisors so they were less dangerous and often mummified them as offerings to the gods. But as far as anyone can tell, baboons have never naturally occurred in Egypt. So yeah, baboons were the only um, non-native uh, to Egypt animal that the Egyptians... Uh, fuck. How how did they get them there? Did were people bringing they them? Traded like, them? So this is really yeah. So this paper basically is saying that yeah, they they basically went and traded for baboons and brought them to Egypt and kept them in cages and like ripped out their teeth and fucking made made mummies out of them. Interesting. Were were they eating them or were they like no, dude? Them? They just had them like hanging out and they were complete assholes like. The baboon is the only animal not native to Egypt that is linked with Egyptian deities. And it's a little odd that ancient Egyptians took such interest in baboons. They tend to steal crops and break into homes looking for food, making them difficult to live with. The people who coexist with baboons don't really like them. So what's that about? What You're the, you're the baboon guy. Well, I know if I'm correct, <laughs> there's, a, there's a great video online. These like tribes will in Africa will take a baboon and they will uh they have to capture it and there's like this giant i believe it's like a big ant pile but like an african ant pile that's like gigantically sized and they'll take melon seeds or something like real sweet or tasty and they'll stuff it inside this hole and they'll put it there in a way that like when the baboon grabs it its hand gets stuck for some reason, instinctively, baboons, when they grab it, they will keep their fists clenched and they'll like lock themselves into the anthill. And then the tribesmen have time to run over and capture the baboon and they'll like put the little thing around his neck and they'll like wrestle him down and they're like capture him. And, and then send they send just... him to Egypt. <laughs> so, so, so then they then they take him and they'll just like tie him up and he'll just be chilling for like hours. And they start feeding him salt, like big blocks of salt, because they really love eating salt. And he'll get really thirsty. And then after like hours and hours, they cut their little rope that they tied him up with. And he runs over and he'll show that they chase after him. And he runs straight to where his water source is. And that's one of the ways that they like go and find water. Uh, that's and crazy. That's a, that's a real interesting, like there's videos of that online. And uh I thought that was super fascinating. When you say baboons, that's what I think of. But that's so manipulative. They're that, like damn. they're very smart. They're they're extremely smart animals, and they're very close to close to us genetically. I did not know that about him being associated with the deity Thoth. That reminds me of um, like stories of what happens with like the DOD and experiencers, like they'll uh, and UFOs, like they'll. They'll basically have like an experiencer as like a bait, I guess. These experiencers like have have uh, contact with these craft for whatever reason. Perhaps you know that that basal ganglia thing. Man, this is a messy episode. <laughs> Don't get caught up. I know, bro. The thing is, is so many people are listening to the show now, and it's right, like so I get I get nervous a little bit. Like I'm like, dang, dude, is this gonna be like the episode people don't like? And like. Yeah. Bro, it's, it's bound to happen. There's going to be flops. No, like, I like it. I just don't want to yeah. get like reamed out. I know. Um, but 
All right, so <laughs> all right, so enough baboon talk. I I thought I just thought that was funny, <laughs> like not funny, but like interesting, because you know we got we have the alien mummies and then um this shit, and I just think it's interesting that they they brought like why did they? I guess my question is why did they bring them back to Egypt and and worship them? Like what at what point I guess was the connection made between baboons and these deities? There's a lot. I feel like there's something there that can be explored, but um, I just wanted to ask if you knew anything about that. I saw both in there and figured you would know everything. Well, <laughs> the something, an interesting story. I'm not. I'm not an expert in Greek, or that's a question I would ask Peter Lavenda because I bet he would give a real interesting answer. There's a Greek story of the Greek gods fighting this entity called Typhon. And Typhon is the offspring, if I'm correct, of like the primordial forces, Gaia and Tartarus. And they like create Typhon as a challenge to the Olympian gods. And Typhon ends up beating Zeus, who's like the king of the cosmos and ruler over the heavens. Like he is the Zeus is the man in Greek mythology. And the story goes is that Typhon defeated Zeus. And he ripped the tendons out of his elbows and his knees and kept him as a prisoner. And there's varying stories on this part. But like my understanding is that Hermes and Pan um, both managed to like rescue Zeus from Typhon. And he was and he ended up being in a, a position to mount a counter strike and ends up defeating Typhon. But this is a story where in the story, I understand when Typhon threatens Mount Olympus, a lot of the Olympians flee to Egypt and they change themselves into animal. Apollo, Apollo ends up becoming the Egyptian god Horus and he turns himself into a hawk. And I'm trying to think. Who is the baboon? That's the question. <laughs> I don't remember a baboon in that story. That's the thing. Fuck, is like, a lot of these stories, I don't want to be insulting to the cultures that they come from. But a lot of them borrow from neighboring civilizations and just like previous people. So like you'll see a lot of what you see in the Greek myth and the Sumerian myths. But they're just kind of like a lot like how you see the like Noah flood myth. You see that rendition in like eight other there's more than eight. A bunch of different cultures have a flood myth. And it's not that like any one particular one is correct. They didn't even have the words to describe what they were going through. They're just trying their best to like, with the words that they had access to describe what they were experiencing, if that makes sense, or at least trying to create a story that people could get something of value out of. But having said that, that Greek story of the gods fleeing to Egypt and turning themselves into animals is a very bizarre and specific thing to happen in a particular myth that yeah. is like uh very fascinating to me. Yeah, there's the idea of like it was a chimera, ch chimera, chimera. Chim chimera, chimera. I'd say. <laughs> Fuck. Um, so yeah, chimera. Um, and that that just kind of ties in with the whole like genetic experiment thing, I think. But that's a that's an interesting little part of all those myths is like there's these stories of entities that are like combinations and splices of other creatures. I don't know what the hell that is meant to like, because <laughs> at, the, at the end of the day, they're, they're writing it down. It has to be important for some reason. I just don't understand why is a Hawkman necessary for you to tell your story? You know, like it's a very specific, bizarre element of these myths. There's such kind of a counterintuitive thing there, too, where it's like, you know, it's like you can't believe these stories because they were made by simpletons who were just like creating a message. Like, doesn't it take more effort to like manufacture some sort of metaphor out of a story than just writing the fucking story? Like, right? Like, <laughs> makes no much. sense to me. You know what I mean, though? It's like you're giving them more credit than you're say than you say they deserve. Right. That's uh, it just seems like a very roundabout way to explain away a story. Let's be real, dude. Think about how much, I don't know if you went to public schools or what, but like, in my opinion, I didn't learn about 
Greek or Egyptian mythology and, until I chose to. Like, I knew who Zeus was, kind of, <laughs> but like, I didn't really feel like I was exposed to any of these things in a way where like, I could give my, the, the, it's like something that I feel like is just getting lost in a game of telephone. And like, we, the way people think back on them is that they're like, like, there was a time where people believed in Zeus, just the same way that like, people believe in Jesus, like thoroughly believe that. And there's still people that do, but like, I, I don't believe in anything. So like Richard Dawkins makes the point. He's like, you know what it's like to be an atheist because you're, I assume he was talking to a guy that I think was Christian. And he's like, you know what it's like because you don't believe in these other gods. I just don't believe in your God. And, uh, I thought that was a very measured way of putting things. These stories, I don't know what to make of these stories, bro. This might be a horrible episode. (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's talk about haunted people syndrome. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, I wrote about this paper a while ago, and it's um, psychological research on paranormal experiences. And they found that paranormal experiences are the norm and not the exception. So they basically wrote this book about haunting phenomena. And it's it's very intertwined with um, personality, ideology, culture, and previous experience, obviously. And that's something that you know we talk about a lot with Jacques Vallée and how these uh, phenomena pre- present themselves to people differently, and um, all that kind of thing. <laughs> so they established this uh, these symptoms, I guess, of of what they call haunted people syndrome. So they they propose four core features of haunted people syndrome. One The meaning, making, or narrative created around haunting experiences is influenced by personal backgrounds, beliefs, and personality characteristics, which is uh, what I just said. Anxiety and distress regarding hauntings are a function of the nature, closeness, and spontaneity of anomalous experiences. Three is distress and unease make anomalous experiences more likely to occur. And four is anomalous experiences tend to be contagious i.e. anomalous experiences can spread to others. So it sounds like the hitchhiker effect. So they also defined um, an important predictor of these experiences, and they call it transliminality, uh, which refers to the boundary between the conscious self and the unconscious self, as well as the outside environment. It's been associated with ESP, out-of-body experiences, and uh, visionary-like experiences in general. Almost like the super spectrum idea, right? Having just one paranormal experience is extremely unlikely. So basically, if you have one, you're, you're bound to have more, which is why they call it, I guess, a syndrome. It's ongoing. And that, that's pretty much you know, what we hear about experiencers is that it you know, happens again and again. And anomalous phenomena tend to be both subjective and objective. Uh, the internal aspects of the experience include sensed presences or somatic touches or marks, whereas external aspects include objects moving or apparitions caught by technology. So this is an actual like psychological study on this stuff. Yeah, man, it's wild. What do you think that means apparitions caught by technology? What does that mean? When you hear that, what do you think? Is that like something floating around in your like ring camera or living room camera, whatever they call it? Yeah. I, I was talking about that with a friend Because like, if you go from person to person, depending on where you live and ask them about ghosts, specifically ghosts, like that's the example I'm going to use, but say like, you say, do you believe in a ghost? You get all sorts of opinions. And there's people out there that seem to believe that like when somebody passes away and take this with a grain of salt, I'm just saying like, this is a thought experiment, but like people think that like when you pass away, it's, there's people out there that for whatever reason, their soul is like connected to this one spot and that they just spend eternity just like in turmoil in that one spot. And uh, I was saying how like, that's not how I ever have conceptualized it. But I think the people that do conceptualize it like that are the ones that say they see things because they believe it so strongly. So let me put it this way. So like when I think about ghosts or like that type of topic i think that it's much more likely if you believe in something 
like 10 fingers, 10 toes, believe in whatever it is across culture. If you believe in it very, very strongly, or you're scared of it, or you have some sort of like emotional hangups about something. I think that if there are consciousnesses out there looking for ways to show itself or just looking for ways to just like exist, I, I think that it's possible that the emotions that human beings point out, put out are almost like uh, beacons for these types of consciousness. And I think that like, in a way, we almost like will these things into existing. Like a tulpa. Like a tulpa, yeah. Like if you focus and believe enough that like you almost see a physical object rendering itself to you. I'm curious if that's what, because like I've heard that about poltergeist. I've never had anything like that. So this is just me talking out my ass. But I've heard that like the more scared you are, the more likely it is that like a poltergeist type of, of event is going to be like even crazier. Like, look at that Philip the bug, Philip the ghost experiment is like yeah. that guy, that person, Philip didn't even exist. People were reporting the table, knocking all around and getting all sorts of responses that made no sense. To me, it seems like there's a couple options here. Either something happens that kind of triggers something in, in a person, whether it's, you know, childhood trauma, you know, some kind of intervention of importance that happens in someone's life. Uh, something, something's either triggered or they're born with it. Or like you, you just said, they, they believe deeply for whatever reason they were, they were raised that way. Or um, it's hard to know what, what comes first. It's kind of a chicken or egg situation. You know, if something triggers like a really intense emotional reaction in you, say you see like a person in your house that's, that isn't really there or like a quote unquote shadow, shadow person or something like that, you know, you saw it, but no one's going to fucking believe you. And that scares you, right? That leaves a mark on you. Kind of uh, heightens your awareness in a way forever. Because <laughs> you're going to be on the lookout for that kind of thing going forward. And so when you made the point earlier, the epigenetic ideas of people being exposed to different types of environments, giving rise to their genes expressing themselves in different ways. That's what I think of. Yeah. Is that like when people come in contact with whatever this is, whatever your frame of reference is for it, like, I, I think there's a there there. So like something is interacting with human beings. Um, different cultures have different ways of interpreting them. Um, I've never personally had this experience, but I feel like the evidence is strong enough to suggest that this happens. Whatever happens to the people that come in contact I think that that's what we're discussing. Maybe, maybe this is something along, along the lines of a control system that, that Valet talks about where, you know, he, he talks about a thermostat that can be turned up or down depending on, you know, the state of the system. It always kind of brings it back to an equilibrium if it gets too far out of whack. Maybe there are things in the environment or there's some sort of intelligence where they can trigger something in the environment that causes a switch to flip in you know the genome or whatever that can bring you to a certain spot that you're supposed to be. I, I agree with that. And the, the idea that a lot of these people are kind of hinting at is that UFOs have a lot to do with early humans' ideas of their myths. What, like that's something Tom DeLong is like hinted at is that the star of Bethlehem might not have been a star like the North Star because of the way it behaved and moved around and like led the Magi to this particular spot. I'm not endorsing that opinion. I'm just saying it's an interesting thought experiment. And if these things did have like, that's a part of what people regard disclosure as is that the religions are going to be involved in it. I'm not a religious person, but understanding the implications of that is like the people are going to have a potential crisis of faith. If it turns out that UFOs historically, if there's some data that suggests that these events that people regard as like sacred or like part of their religion, I can see how that's going to be something that's like upsetting. You know what I mean? Like if, if someone has a longstanding belief that something is the way that it is, I understand entirely if that shakes up your worldview. So I'm not trying to stomp on people's beliefs, but at the same time, if the evidence suggests something, we should follow the evidence 
and go from there. I I don't recommend joining any group or being in any religion if it's not something that like you don't sincerely believe in, you know? Like I just feel like the most honest opinion is to say your honest opinion. There's a quantum AI living under Antarctica. <laughs> exactly. That's <laughs> the, a fact. Something that <laughs> something that like is an interesting part of this is that like I was talking about how different myths seem like rehashed versions of previous myths. They're almost inherited in a way and like switched up depending on what the cultural needs were of that civilization. Kind of like the ancient monuments. Yeah. Maybe, maybe. (laughs) The, because there's this part of that Jacques Vallée book dimensions. Well, like you mentioned a control system. It's almost as if, whatever these are creating our myths which are like in a big way myths shape people's behavior if you believe that this god is going to reward you for acting a specific way it's going to have a huge sociological implication for your behavior your neighbor's behavior everyone is in a way playing along to whatever belief system they have a part of that book dimensions was saying these events that are shaping our myths appear to have to do with ufos potentially he mentions it as like almost a form of technology or a product of technology he says i'm not regarding the phenomenon of the ufos as the unknowable uncontrollable game of a higher order of beings neither is it likely in my view that an encounter with ufos would add to the human being anything it did not already possess Everything works as if the phenomenon were the product of a technology that followed well-defined rules and patterns, though fantastic by ordinary human standards. It has so far posed no apparent threat to national defense and seems to be indifferent to the welfare of individual witnesses, leading many to assume that we may be dealing with a still undiscovered natural occurrence. In parentheses, it cannot be intelligent, say some people, because it does not attack us, but its impact in shaping man's long-term creativity and unconscious impulses is probably enormous. The fact that we have no methodology to deal with such an impact is only an indication of how little we know about our own psychic world. I think that's going to be a big part of studying all this. The material world, it seems like physicists and biologists are like giving a hell of a shot at explaining and interpreting it seems like that hard problem of consciousness everybody has to come to the table soon to try to understand how this whole thing works yeah there's there's the argument like is consciousness something that arises because people develop brains and then brains become conscious or is consciousness something that precedes evolution and that ends up using dna as a mechanism to create itself almost right i like there's both of those things are very abstract i think that's part of what valet is trying to understand this idea of our psychic world and people like even john mack was brilliant when he when he like studied abductees is that he would mention that like whatever this is it's certainly real to the people that it's happening to. It's, I'm just curious how consciousness continues to play a role in this. So when we talk about myths and their influence on potentially our culture and our evolution even, and in the context also of the, the control system that Valet talks about, have you ever seen Cabin in the Woods? No, that's a horror movie, right? Yeah, dude, you got, you got to see that shit. Um, What's it about? So- Oh my God. This guy is my friend, um, Old Vet Shane. I think you know him. He's uh, at Old Vet Symposium on, sure. on Twitter. Yeah, yeah he's, a, he's a great guy. And he runs uh, spaces and stuff. But he he really got my mind going. He talked about this movie, Cabin in the Woods, and related it to the control system. And yeah, you definitely have to watch this. It's basically, there's going to be some spoilers here. Um, sorry. It, it is a horror movie. And it starts out like a normal thing, you know, a bunch of fucking dumbass teenagers go 
to a cabin in the woods and they're drinking and all that shit. And like, you know, shit starts going crazy and, you know, all this like zombies come and all this stuff. It turns out that the whole thing is staged. There is a facility that's underground making all this stuff happen. It's like, so there's basically all these monsters in cages that are like underground. Yeah, all over the world, this has to happen. And it's essentially um, human sacrifice in order to keep these <laughs> gods or whatever uh, from destroying the world. They have to do these human sacrifices. In this context, it's myths of like horror movies, right? Like the people have to die in a certain order. There's a virgin who has to die at the end or survive. Yeah, it's basically ancient myths that have to be reenacted, I guess, like every year or so, or else the gods will basically destroy the world. They figure this out at the end and they're like smoking a joint, like the two characters that survive and they're like, fuck it. Let's just let the gods destroy the world because humanity is like a piece of shit. And uh, it's pretty funny. Like it's 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 very descriptive of, of a kind of control system. All this stuff has to play out a certain way or else the gods will come and, and you know, fucking destroy everything. Damn. Yeah, you got to see it. It's wild. It's a crazy movie. It's one of my, it's probably my favorite horror movie, honestly. And like when he said that, I was like, holy fucking shit. Like that makes so much sense. Well, that's an interesting part of like a lot of these ancient myths when it comes to blood. I know we've talked about like the creation of man being similar, like how a lot of myths portray mankind being created from clay and then like life is breathed into them. But like, yeah. People in the original myth, the Sumerian myth, with, with uh, Marduk and Tiamat, Marduk defeats Tiamat. And Tiamat is like this ancient older god that is like a dragon. Marduk uses the blood of Tiamat mixed with the clay of the earth to create humans, which are created as slaves for the lazy gods. And it's interesting the role that blood plays. That's a part of uh, Secret Machines. I was I was listening to Secret Machines one, uh, gods the the nonfiction yeah. on uh, audiobook, and that's a major part of the first few chapters is how DNA and blood appears to be like something that's for whatever reason desirable. Like it appears that blood. Even in these ancient cultures, blood appears to be, <laughs> dude, this is going to be so crazy. I don't want to talk. No, it's cool. Like, um, <laughs> like did, you know, did you see, I saw something online that's like, uh, people under 20 can make $850 donating blood to like, I don't know. It seems like, a, <laughs> no, I'm serious. It seems like a fucking like vampire thing. Like Peter Thiel's in charge of where he's like paying all these young kids to like drink their blood or something. I'm serious, man. It's crazy. <laughs> Well, that's the thing with like, uh, do take the cattle mutilation phenomenon, for example, like there are reports of bloodless, trackless cattle mutilation where a farmer's cow is splayed out, not a drop of blood to be found and not a track in sight of any vehicle that contributed to this event happening. Yeah, and, it was Linda. You know that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Linda Bolton oh, Howe did all the cat. Remember that? That's what the uh, debunkers said. Is it that so she, funny? She, she came, little four foot eleven Linda Howe came out in a hovercraft, sucked all the blood out of a fucking cow. <laughs> like, <To> make, <laughs> that's like yeah. the funniest thing ever. Like, <laughs> like the image is just like, dude. Oh god! Like she, uh, she's drained the blood out of a cow to like investigate it and like grift like it's it's the craziest it's like yeah we're the conspiracy theorists nuts i don't know what to make of the role blood played in a lot of these ancient myths or why it was so important to them like i think that the secret machines gods does a really good job of trying to like chisel that issue down um, but to me, a lot of these myths are so garbled and like they're the, the biggest takeaway I have from examining any myth is that they didn't have the words that we have today to describe things. And what I'm worried about is if these things have just been happening constantly and we're just like 
ignoring some main aspects of the story because that's not our particular belief system. But like the big picture wise, we're not examining what these myths are saying. Why are we the way that we are? Because we're so much different than every other everything. A big element in a lot of these stories is that human beings are like the result of some sort of conflict. Speaking of cattle mutilations or just some <laughs> blood uh, from Valet's uh, Forbidden Science 5. I, I don't know if you remember this quote, but... Um, this is the most recent one, right? Yeah. Uh, it says, over the next hour or so, he gave me a summary of his supposed experiences. Fellow pilots who saw strange craft, colleagues he'd taken to see John Mack, a Nevada colonel he introduced to Bigelow and a very disturbed FBI agent who got drunk with him and confessed he'd been put in charge of surveillance for a site where 100 bodies had been found, dropped from the sky naked. Nothing is verifiable in these stories. <laughs> what kind of science can you do with them? This They're, is people? Yeah, no, this is a story uh, Valet put into his book. But he's saying, like, this is, cr this is crazy. Like, are they feeding me bullshit? But uh, yeah, imagine that. A hundred bodies dropped from the sky naked. Oh my God. I guess that's something they wouldn't want to release the review board. Right. <laughs> Obviously. Like I, I, the, if, what if do you, you do with that? Like you, um, you're like, Hey, check this out. Don't like tell your kids about this. This is uh kind of proves the point why controlled disclosure is needed. I don't know, man. We just need the fucking truth to like stamp out this bullshit that's turning people into fucking psychos and it's a problem. Um, yeah, it was a good, good one. There's some shit in there. And um, yeah, I should have it out tomorrow night. So <laughs> Watch, we'll it's going to be like seven, yeah. 17 minutes long. <laughs> yeah, we'll see. <laughs> I'm just kidding, dude. No, it'll, it'll be, be good. good. Um, all right, man. All right, man. Sounds good. Uh, I'll let you know. Yeah, it was a good chat. Always a right. fucking always fun as well.